Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Carey. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, Steph, what's new in your world? Hey, Chris. I am, I'm going on vacation next week, and I am so excited about that. It's going to be uh, pretty much week long. It's like a Tuesday through Friday ordeal, and it's a, it's a trip that I'm taking with my mom. So over the past year, she's gotten super serious about her health and nutrition and done just like a phenomenal job of being very focused on like a plant-based diet, which is basically is healthy vegan food is what that comes down to. So uh, there is a retreat that's taking place in the North Carolina mountains that she's really excited about. I'm going to go with her. Uh, we're going to do lots of cooking and hiking and hanging out in the mountains, and it's going to be lovely. Well, that does sound lovely. Yeah, it seems like a really perfect time to disconnect just because you're headed into the mountains. So all you should take with you are books and things that are not iPhones and tablets and computers and screens. So that's I'm looking forward to that uh, just to be away from screens for the week. On some more technical news, uh, this past week, I helped troubleshoot a production issue, which was a bit novel for me because the work that Joelle and I are doing with our current project, it's all in the testing realm. And so it was around probably around 10 o'clock at night, my time. And I got a ping on Slack and it looked like it was like I was getting called in for a production issue. And I was like, I have touched zero production code. <laughs> so I'm very intrigued how I could have broken production at this point. And so I, I looked into it and it turned out that it wasn't necessarily related to a commit that I had authored, but it was for a commit that I had reviewed and then approved. And so their strategy is they create a new channel. They'd gotten a ticket that an error was occurring and then the uh, site reliability team created a new Slack channel, and then they ping everybody who either authored, reviewed, and approved that change to be like, hey, we think the issue is related to this commit. Our plan is we'd like to roll it back, but before we do, we just want to check in with folks who have more knowledge to help us confirm that, yes, this error message seems related. And I really liked that approach. I really like the idea that it's not just the person who merged the commit that then gets pinged on it, but it's like everybody else who happened to look at this and review it, like come help us too. So we spent some time looking into it, confirmed that yes, indeed, it was related to that particular commit. And then their team did the wonderful thing of then rolling it back. So then it was no longer an escalated issue. And so then I asked, what else can I do to help? And they said, well, from here, where it's no longer a production issue. So tomorrow, just follow up with the author and let them know and uh, issue a, a fix for the bug and then merge it like normal. So we're back in that normal like pull request flow, very calm. And overall, I just appreciated their process. I like very much how they like pulled more people in. So because I think uh, some of the other people that were involved weren't uh, online, which makes sense because it was really late. So that way you just sort of like spread in case some other people really aren't available that then hopefully you'll get lucky and one of those three or four people are available to help you troubleshoot. That does sound like a, a really nice and thoughtful and intentional sort of bug response, communication, procedure, rollback, et cetera. All of that sounds like it kind of worked very well and is nice to have and it's the sort of thing that uh, a larger organization ideally gets to having having those sort of processes um spoiler alert later in the episode i will talk about the other side of it of being a very young organization and trying to be like wait is this a bug is this not a bug should we roll back what do we do uh, that, that's actually my topic du jour but what you're describing sounds like the calm even in the case that there is a fire sort of like yep we've got procedures we have workflows we have communication channels and ways that uh, even the exceptional things can be handled in a ideally as common as possible way. So that's awesome that that's uh, what you got to experience there. 
Yeah, getting called in at 10 o'clock is, you know, never fun for anybody. But I mean, when it happens, because it's going to happen, then I I appreciate the thoughtfulness and that process that they put behind it. So it all went uh, fairly smoothly. And it was also one of those fun things where I haven't met like this is a very big organization. So I hadn't met any of those people. So when I got pinged on it, and then I hopped in, I was like, Hi, I I don't know anything about this process and what y'all are doing, but I I am here. I'm here to help. Where can I look? What can I do? So it was also a fun endeavor in that regard to just be like, don't know what I'm doing, but I am here to help. Please let me know how I can help. And, And it ended up working pretty well. So yeah, that's been a fun adventure for this week. How about you? What's new in your world? What is new in my world? Uh, well, we had a developer start this week, which has been really wonderful. Uh, unfortunately, we had scheduled their first day to be uh, Monday, which was President's Day and thus a holiday. So we got out in front of that one and figured it out. We're like, no, no, uh, actually, feel free to start on Tuesday. We'll not be around on Monday, so you shouldn't be around on Monday. Uh, but then on Tuesday, they started and we intentionally structured things such that we have a contractor who's been working with us for it's like seven or eight months now so it's been a long time and been very formative as well to work with that contractor so this is their last week and thus we very purposefully sort of brought the the new person on the team and that contractor together to maximize the amount of pairing and overlap that we have there uh, just to try and as intentionally as possible grab whatever's in their head get another point of view because there'll be this new individual on the team We'll be able to work with myself and the other full-time developer on the team a bunch moving forward. So we wanted to maximize their overlap with the person who is on their way out. Um, But otherwise, it's been great. It's been, you know, we're we're a young organization. So the version of onboarding, like it's me running around, setting up a lot of accounts, forgetting to set up other ones, getting pings in Slack, and then following up and setting up another account. Eventually, I hope that there are checklists and formalizations and ideally one-click SSO magic that makes all of that work. But for now, I'm, I'm happy to chase it down. Um, but really, we're just leveraging pairing as much as possible as the onboarding tool to make sure that we're where we don't have formalization procedures, documentation, et cetera, as thoroughly built out as I would love to be at. Uh, we can shore that up with some just time with other humans. So that's awesome. Uh, it's always fun having someone new to join to highlight all the things you need to automate or at least have a checklist for to then help them onboard. But that's really exciting that you've got a new teammate. Yeah, definitely very exciting. And they've been great. They've hit the ground running and a couple pull requests already and just contributing uh, very effectively within their first couple of days. So that's always wonderful to see. But yeah, we are definitely taking this moment to sort of document what is undocumented or, you know, update the readme where it needs to be and start to make that checklist. We have another person who will be starting in uh, about two weeks time. And so ideally, that will be even a little bit more fleshed out of a process. So, you know, slowly, incrementally get a little bit better with each time that we uh, each at bat that we get there. How much do you involve the new person in creating that documentation? Is that something that you ask them to help build or is it something you take ownership of? How was that balance? It's an interesting. So definitely some I want to be with that person because I think it can often be the the easy first PR is an update to the readme for like, oh, I tried to set up the app and it did not work for this reason. I have now updated the readme and now there's a pull request and we get to like experience that flow via the very low stakes change of updating the readme. So that's a definite one that I like to have. The other is I'll typically ask for the the individual to capture as much as possible. There's a very delicate line in my mind between 
empowering them and being like, yes, absolutely. We're young. We don't have everything documented. So feel free to make changes where that makes sense to you. But at the same time, I know that joining a new team can be complicated, can be intimidating in certain ways. You're not sure. Sort of like, what's what's the, what's the okay to change? What's not okay to change? That sort of thing. So I want, simultaneously don't want to put the pressure on someone to be like, yeah, no, change anything you want. Literally nothing is stable here. Nothing's glued to the ground. So feel free to pick up anything and throw it out the window. That feels too far in my mind. So I don't have an actual answer of like, I am ideally calibrated at this point, but it's sort of those two tensions that I'm holding in mind as I think about that. Well, I really like your answer. I like that balance because I think it's really nice to include the person in those changes and also just because they're going through it. So they just, they happen to have that insight and it's fresh. But I, I agree. Like when you're joining a job, you want some stability and confidence that the people that you are joining that team with are also working hard to make it a very positive onboarding experience. And if you just were to push all of that responsibility onto them to be like, yeah, we know we, we don't have this organized yet. So you tell us everything that we need to do that would feel unkind to that new person. I think as a new person that I wouldn't fully enjoy that. I don't mind some of it, but I wouldn't want all of it. I'd have nervousness around ownership, around improving processes and who that belongs with. Sort of a classic case of it depends or it's a little from column A, a little from column B, but definitely some, just hopefully not too much. The Goldilocks of onboarding. <laughs> some onboarding responsibilities, but not all of them. Just just the right amount. <laughs> Shifting gear slightly, though, uh, I just want to gripe for a minute. I'm just going to gripe. This is not my normal mode, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into it. Do it. Accounts. Just accounts. Ever. I have so many accounts now. There are so many across different systems, and I'm trying to do the good thing, which is let's stop using personal accounts for anything and only use organizational accounts for the things that are for work. And some organizations do a great job with this. GitHub, I'm looking at you. Really well done. Super happy with the way that you folks have implemented accounts. You get that I am one human being that contains multitudes. I am my personal self. I am my work self. I am maybe even another version of work. And you get that. And you just let me exist as all of those versions of myself. And man, do I appreciate that. Heroku, you're okay. Like, it's all right. You treat the different facets of me as different accounts, but that's okay. You make it relatively easy to switch between. Although you do make me two-factor auth and relog in every single day, and I don't love that. So I don't know what's going on there, but uh, fine. Trello aka Atlassian, I guess at this point, what? Come on, what are we doing? What's going on here? And so originally I'd started and I had the one Trello account and I had my personal boards and then there was the Sagewell organizational account and within that there were some boards and I would just bounce back and forth, but I realized, no, I need to do the right thing. So I created a new Trello account and now Atlassian just like forces me to switch between them and it loses the link that I'm going to often. It's a different login interstitial screen and it constantly shows me the like, hey, you don't have access to this. Do you want to switch accounts? And I say yes. And then they take me to a screen where I can pick between two options. The one that I was that didn't have the ability to do it and another. And as a developer, I know that the thing I'm about to say is not fair. But come on, folks, you could know the answer to this question. There are two and one is a wrong answer. So the other one is probably the right answer. You don't need to auto log me into that. I get it. Just emphasize it because they almost look identical on the list. I have now accidentally tried to request access with my secondary account to my other account and I can't get out of that state. So now one of the ways that I try and do this, it shows me a list of them to pick. The other, it says, you have requested access. We're waiting to hear back. And I'm like, no. And uh, so anyway, that's that's a thing. Um. So I know people can't see me. So I'll narrate that I'm dying over here. 
because <laughs> uh, I very much appreciate that. We we are positive people. Uh, we we are very focused on bringing positive energy, but the descent into the amount of shade that you were throwing <laughs> at different applications <laughs> uh, just really made my day. And I feel that pain. I have felt that pain with Atlassian and can relate. And we, we should have some gripe sessions. This is this feels healthy. This feels very... Okay, well, I don't know for you. I'm the one laughing and getting joy out of this. I don't know if it's helpful for you, but it feels very cathartic to me. It is definitely somewhat cathartic. I think there's utility in having these sort of conversations and the like throwing shade at Atlassian, whatever, they're doing fine. So I'm not super worried about it. But generally, we try and keep things positive because I think that's frankly a more effective way to communicate. But occasionally it is useful to look at the things and we're like that. That is a pattern that I do not want to repeat. And I'm sure that there are complex organizational enterprisey reasons that it has to be this way. But I can look at that and say, never that. That experience as a user is so, it's like, wow, yeah, I just tripped over nine layers of your enterprise there just trying to do very simple day-to-day things for myself. So I want to avoid that. Um, I've griped about that one login not the company one login, but that one login page that I've experienced where I start to interact with the form and suddenly some JWT handshake in the background happens and I'm now logged in and it just rips the page out from underneath me. That is unacceptable. That is not okay. And I really do think there's something worth occasionally looking at those and being like, well, not that. But anyway, I should probably stop my gripe session now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if I may join in, I have one that I'd like to share. (laughs) Since we're on this, throw it on the pile. What else we got? (laughs) (laughs) So there was some, there was some code. There was a piece of code that I was looking at that uh, was very not friendly. It was difficult to understand. Like it it took a, it took a while to parse through. Like what are, what are they actually doing? What records are they creating? Why did they choose this manner? Why are we iterating over these particular numbers? Like what's the outcome here? And I was pairing with it uh, with Joel, and we're just going back and forth, having a conversation, trying to be the detectives of why this code exists. And we finally got there and we finally understood what it's doing and why. And I just, I lost it for a minute (laughs) once we finally got there where I just thought the the way this code is written, it does not improve readability and it doesn't improve performance. All it did was make my life harder because it was very difficult to read. So all they did was become really clever with the code that they were writing and essentially drying it up, which I have such a beef with dry because it has caused me pain. And so they essentially were drying up their code or introducing a way to make it just take up fewer lines that took up uh, less vertical space. But overall, I was very grumpy about it. And Joel was very kind about it and was like, well, this is the type of code like I could see maybe why they did this, but you're right, it doesn't help with readability and performance. And he was helping balance out my my grumpy goose moment that I, I was I've been having a lot this week. Maybe it's just the week I'm in. I'm in more of a fiery mode <laughs> this week. Some of the code that I'm seeing. And uh, that was one of them. That was the, uh, please, please, please don't drive your code. If it doesn't improve readability or performance, there's just no need. There was no benefit. Oh, I definitely know that feeling. And I think I've probably as a developer sort of gone through that arc where early on I was just trying to make stuff work. And then I learned how to be clever. And suddenly being clever became a, a game that I could play. And then pretty early on, I realized like I would come back to my own code from two weeks ago. I'd be like, what the heck does this do? I have no idea. And that's sort of when I was drawn to Ruby. That was one of the things I'm like, oh, I can I can write code that looks so much like the clear words that I have in my head about the thing. I like that. And so much of my career has been spent in the let's make it obvious and revisitable. I actually remember very clearly early on in my time at ThoughtBot, 
I was working on something and was working on it with Joe Ferris, who is the CTO of ThoughtBot and a very clever individual. And I mean that in the truly positive sense of the term, um, one of the most capable engineers I've ever worked with. He was describing, I think he was describing an anecdote, but it was basically put up a pull request and someone replied, oh, that's clever. And Joe's reaction was, oh, crap. Just like taking that as all, not an insult, but as someone saying like, oh, that's clever in a positive way. And Joe hearing that in the negative form of like, I, I went too far here or this is not obvious in its initial interpretation. And that really stuck in my head from there, just his reaction to it immediately of that being not a good thing. And I was like, that is interesting. Uh, and all the more so over time, I've come to believe in that, that clever is probably something to avoid in code. Yeah, agreed. I'm at the point that if I do see someone who's done something that uh, I do think is clever in a positive way, I will still abstain from using that word clever because I do want to make sure they don't think that I'm saying in a bad way that this is clever, that it's not readable and it's not friendly. So I will, yeah, I, I totally avoid that word when I'm complimenting someone's code just to make sure there's no confusion. That's one of those words that got away from us that we lost the definition of and then we came back right, yeah. Hey friends, and now a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is an application performance monitoring tool that's designed to help developers find and fix performance issues quickly. With an intuitive user interface, Scout will tie bottlenecks to source code so you can quickly pinpoint and resolve performance abnormalities like N plus one queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat. Scout also recently implemented external service monitoring, adding even more granularity when it comes to HTTP requests and API calls. So give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial and experience firsthand why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an added bonus for Bike Shed listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. To learn more, visit scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed. That's scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed. Let's see, in other news, uh, you had mentioned this earlier, and then I had mentioned my side of it, um, but errors and alerting and all of those sort of things, they're an interesting question. We had a, a small situation over the weekend that turned out to be kind of real, kind of not real, but uh, I happened to be away on vacation. I did have my computer with me because at this point, we're early enough on that I'm like, I'm going to take my computer everywhere and just be ready in case it's necessary. And in this case, I did get a ping. I looked into it and... What was unfortunate is it wasn't immediately obvious if something was broken or not. And to a certain degree, that's always going to be kind of true. There's so much noise, so many requests hitting a web application. And how do you tell the good ones from the bad ones? And ideally, I could threshold around certain um, volumes of traffic. But like even that's going to have spikes and ebbs and flows and things like that. So it was very hard initially to understand, is something actually broken? And then all the more so to understand what was broken. Thankfully, it was tractable, it was solvable. Uh, and we've done, I think, some good work, especially considering how early on we are and how we've instrumented things in Sentry, in particular, our usage of Sentry, and also somewhat in the logs. But again, I'm, I'm, I think I've talked about this before, but I'm feeling this tension around uh, there's data, there's data just kind of like, what happened? And right now we've got logs, that's one of the places it goes, Sentry, if it gets escalated up to that level. And we sort of have a weird Venn diagram between logs and Sentry. And then we also have analytics as another thing. And then eventually data science and what do we want to try and learn? And all of these kind of want different facets of, it's not the same data set, but I wonder, is there a superset of data that then we could filter and slice and cut up and do all those sort of things? Like, I think this is the dream of Honeycomb and platforms like that, but I'm not even certain if that's true. And so I'm sort of in that awkward middle space is how I would describe it. 
But in that particular case, I was able to resolve it. Uh, I did take away as an action. It's probably time to start thinking about pager duty, anomaly detection, that sort of thing. When does alerting happen? When do engineers actually get called? When, you know, not just during the normal nine to five of the workday. Um, so I'll be investigating that in the coming weeks and see where we get to. But it was sort of the first thing that really pushed us in that direction. Um, the other thing I'll say is we have the idea of the point dev, which I've talked about on a couple of episodes, but the idea is for each week, one individual on the engineering team is in charge of the noise, for lack of a better term. They're looking at the error stream and sentry. They're looking at any ad hoc requests that are coming from our admin team, et cetera, et cetera. And that's been really great. But one thing that I've noticed is that dealing with the errors is particularly tricky. And uh, what we did in this particular case was just to pair on that. As an individual, it is really hard to sometimes to reproduce, sometimes just understand like these are the things you didn't expect in your code. And therefore, they're sort of by definition harder to understand, harder to think about. And then sometimes you get to an understanding. You're like, ah, what do we do about that? Do we care? Do we not care? Is this just noise? Is this something we should solve? Is it something we should solve soon? Or is this something we can solve whenever we get to it in the backlog? And making that sort of determination is all the harder. And so I'm increasingly of the mind that like there should be some amount of time that is pairing on that error backlog to share, sort of bring two heads together. Like I think it's a, I hadn't been thinking of it this way, but I've now come around to thinking of this is a really great place for pairing because it's so hard for one individual to deal with that complexity, to make the hard value judgments. And to do that, like if each individual does that in a vacuum, then we have, you know, N different value systems at play that are hopefully very similar. But if we start to pair up, then there's osmosis between those groupings. And ideally, we sort of coalesce towards a shared value structure around like, what can we ignore? What should we snooze for a week? What should we put in the backlog? What should we prioritize and fix immediately? Uh, because I think those are really hard things to otherwise, like that's really hard to document, I would say. I would love to write up a page in the wiki that says, this is how you treat errors, except each error is a unique snowflake. And uh, you just have to follow your values. So... I have been on teams where we've written a documentation that uh, helps you triage an error, because you're right, you can't write documentation around a specific error. But that I always found really helpful, where it was like, here's all the links that you can look at, here are some recommendations, here are, uh, when we were working on an application that was falling all over more often, then there were some specific outlines around, if you see this problem, then this is typically how you can solve it. And then we had to fix that at a larger scale, but it was a nice band-aid to get us through at that point. I like the idea of pairing, especially as you mentioned, as it's tricky. It's funny when you mentioned uh, capturing those errors and putting them into the backlog, because I, I like the idea that then you can prioritize and bring those into the sprint. It just made me feel a bit hesitant. If we don't work on it now, we're never going to work on it. But then that feels unfair to say, because it really comes down to the team. If you have a team that's going to be able to look at those errors and say, yes, we're going to bring them in and prioritize them, then that feels really good to then be able to say, this is an error, let's capture it, let's provide some content around it. But it doesn't need to be addressed at this moment. It's still pretty low in terms of risk for users, or at least low in impact for users. So yeah, I guess it just depends as long as the team feels good about being able to prioritize errors, which I feel confident that your team would be able to do. And if you can't, then y'all could reassess that plan. Thus far, we definitely have that. We're revisiting the errors. They are part of the same backlog as everything else. So they're coming up in relative priority and getting worked on and getting resolved. But we're also uh, shifting our thinking just a little bit to say, like, we should take a little bit more time in the moment to try and resolve some of these where we can. 
Um, I have the dream of there are just zero bugs ever, but that's hard, especially in different platforms. And we're seeing a lot of mobile traffic and from different older Android versions. And so weird JavaScript edge cases and things like that. Like, why does your runtime not have object? That feels like a thing every JavaScript runtime should have, but that's a joke. Every JavaScript runtime, I'm pretty sure, does have object. But that sort of thing, it's like, ooh, this is this is weird and specific to this one device. Cool. Those are fun. So yeah, giving a little bit more time to do those. And again, so we definitely do have the document that describes here are the places to look and how to sort of think about this category of error and this category of error. But at the end of the day, you get one that's just like, there's not a ton of detail in the error. It's hard to reproduce. It might be device specific, et cetera. And so what do you do in that moment? And that's where we're trying to sort of, I think pairing is a great way to sort of share that thinking around the team. So overall, it's been great, though. I, I think um, everyone who's been involved has been like, this was better than when I did it on my own. So cool. Awesome. That sounds great. Yeah, uh, I think so. This is, you know, one of those ever evolving facets of how we work as a team and how we build the platform. So I will certainly report more in future episodes. But uh, for now, happy with that. And uh, yeah, what else is up in your world? Yeah. Uh, so we've been looking specifically into tooling around how we're going to spin up more machines to process more RSpec tests. So specifically, we have around 80,000 RSpec tests that we are processing, and we have one machine that is parallelizing those. And uh, it takes around uh, just for that portion of the build, because then there are other tests and things that get run uh, that brings it up to about a total of 30 minutes. But for the RSpec portion, it's I think it's probably around like 20-ish minutes to process those 80,000 tests. So we split that across four different containers and then we run those tests. And so we'd really like to spin up more machines to then process because we've reached the point that we have given as much power to that one machine as possible. So now we're looking to add more machines. And one of those solutions that we were looking at is using BuildKite, which is built with the idea that you can add these build steps so then you can more easily say, all right, once we get to this particular build step, hey, BuildKite, we'd like to run in number of machines to process all these tests. And that seems really nice. And it is something that we are interested in. It's actually what Shopify uses. They use uh, BuildKite CIQ, uh, which is built for mini tests, which is what they use and Redis to then run all of their tests. Uh, but we are using TeamCity. So we're not using BuildKite. And we would like to see if we can grow with our current CI infrastructure versus having to move to a new one. There's a lot of just risk involved in moving to a new one. And so we've been studying hard if TeamCity will let us do this. And so far, the answer has been no. But uh, just recently, uh, we found somewhere in the docs that it looks like there is a chance that with Team City, we can inform Team City that, hey, even though we have just this one build step, instead of only giving us one agent or one provisioned machine to then run these tests, instead that we actually want to spin up a couple of machines to then process these and then aggregate the results back to this one step. So we're looking into that, but I wanted to throw this out there in case anybody else is also using TeamCity and has already invested in this particular approach. I would love to hear about it because we are currently figuring out the capabilities and if this is something that we can stay with our current infrastructure or if we're really going to have to look for a new solution. Well, I'm hopeful that someone out there can can give you some uh, some input. I definitely get the idea that you're sort of stuck and this is... Stuck's maybe too strong of a word, but if Team City's not ideal, the idea of moving off it does feel exceedingly heavy. That said, 
and like the riskiness that you talked about like that's i think a critical word here because i think it's easy to think of ci as like oh that's not like it's a very important thing but like that's absolutely critical as part of your deploy pipeline i assume like this is speaking generically about ci and so it is in fact a critical critical piece of the infrastructure like if you've got a bug on production and suddenly ci is down what do you do i guess you can test locally and decide you're going to push past it but then you have to like circumvent it and so i i understand the intentional way that you're thinking about that and, and the risk associated i do wonder though if team city has been it's felt like not the right platform for a while. And if it's if there are considerations, is there the possibility of both trying to improve the world that you have now so it's not the big move off of it, but then also in parallel start to work on an alternative implementation? This is perhaps not entirely fair, but it feels like, you know, a Rails application is this repository of code. And typically CI is configured via file. And that's like, if you've got your team city.yaml or whatever it happens to be, could there also be a buildkite.yaml that is not in the critical path for deploying or anything like that, but is a way to, frankly, somewhat inefficiently test on two different platforms, but start to see if you can get the code moving on a different platform and be able to gradually build out and make that transition possible without it being one big fell swoop swap over sort of thing, which eventually it would need to be. But just wondering, is that happening in parallel? Is that a is that a possibility? I think the short answer is I'm, I'm sure there is. There's a way to look at the existing system and then find ways that we can tweak it. But I also know that the team has already invested a lot into working with the current system and making it as efficient as possible. So I don't know if there's any true like big impact, but intermediary steps that we can take. We are definitely in that proof of concept world. So we're not going to move anything over for the rest of the team until we can really prove that something is working for a small subset and then start to expand from there. But I, I think it's going to be currently our idea is to dig further into Team City, which I think also includes just a call to their team and say, hey, we'd, we'd love to talk to one of your engineers and see if the thing that we're trying to do, if it's possible, uh, let us know if it's not and if we need to look elsewhere, which is intriguing to me because having a lot of tests isn't new. There, there are tons of companies that have lots of tests and they want their CI test suite to be fast. So a company that then has built software that helps team execute these steps that then the ability to say, hey, I want more machines to process. Like I want to give you more money and to give us more machines and we can process more things. I feel like that should be a thing. And I'm getting at the, the edges of my knowledge. This is why we're exploring all of this. But it has been surprising to me to realize that that doesn't seem as easy of a thing as I would have expected it to be. There are also some other concerns around here where the client that we're working with, uh, if we're going to work with third-party vendors, then we have to get special approval to work with them. It's not just a, hey, we can just go try it out. Uh, it's sort of like a lengthy contract process that we'd have to go through. So there's also some constraints that we have to keep in mind where we can't just work with anyone. We need to be careful to make sure that they're certified in a particular way. So yes, I like your idea. I will definitely keep it in mind, but I don't know if there's any true intermediary steps yet for a stake other than the the building out a proof of concept and then finding small ways that we could move over. Then I, I think that would be ideal for sure. And then hopefully if there's anybody that's listening that has experience with Team City or BuildKite, that's the other tool that we're looking at using, uh, let me know. I would love to chat about it and find out your experience. On that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Mandy Moore. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes, as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed or reach me on Twitter at svicari. 
And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or you can reach us at host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.